Empathy is knowing our own darkness well enough to sin. So without that connection, you don't have anything. What's the opposite of fiction? It's freedom. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the 50th, the five, the zero episode of Finding Peaks Recovery Centers. Who would have thought from episode one to episode 50? So no pressure to our guests today to make this an absolutely fantastic episode 50 here at Finding Peaks. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, you all may remember a couple weeks ago, even several weeks ago, uh, Jason and Clint and I uh, tried to address uh, cultural and societal norms and its impact on individuals, uh, or at least the impact we see on individuals within substance use disorder and mental health primary settings, uh, such as Peaks Recovery Centers. And it trailed off a little bit into more of a, a gender-specific uh, uh, treatment episode uh, in regards, I think we navigated it as best we could, but maybe not the best. And then I was sitting in a training opportunity at, uh, at our uh, within our company culture that we do on Tuesdays, and these two fantastic individuals with us today um, did a phenomenal job actually about bringing that uh, education into our setting. And I thought those, those were the individuals that needed to be on this episode <laughs> that Jason and Clinton and I uh, just could not get right. So I'm joined today by uh, Kimberly Holcomb, Welcome. Thank she you. is uh, the family specialist, family service specialist at Peaks Recovery Centers, master's in sociology, and working on her certified addiction specialist licensure. Uh, congrats on that direction. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for being here. And then also joined by Pema White, uh, primary therapist for Peaks Recovery Centers, also working on our women's, or excuse me, our family programming. Uh, in that regard, licensed professional counselor and licensed addiction counselor, meaning she has a master's in all the things. Uh, so uh, we've got those talents on board. And if you come into you know, Peaks Recovery Centers or otherwise, if you are a patient of ours or a family member, you cannot come through this uh, program without seeing these two individuals. It is nearly impossible. Uh, in that regard. So thank you both for being with me today and joining us here on Finding Peaks. And let's get after it. So okay. cultural and societal norms and the impact of those individual experiences and what we see within uh, our setting at Peaks Recovery Centers. So what is it, before we kind of dive in here, that kind of inspires you guys about this topic in the first place? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think... You know, looking at culture, it, it, it's, I find it inspiring because it's, it's all of us, right? Um, there's a great quote by David Foster Wallace. He was giving a commencement speech once, and uh, he talked about, you know, two fish swimming downstream, and there's this older fish that's swimming upstream and says, hey, fellas, how's the water? Um, and they, they just kind of wave him off, and a little while later, the one fish turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> Uh, right? And, yeah. and that's culture to me, right? This thing that we're, we're moving through, whether it's familial culture or, or culture on a larger scale, we're moving through it, we're creating it as we go, you know, we're influenced by it, we learn from it, all of that. And yet, we, we don't tend to take a look at it critically or to look at the ways it impacts our lives and our trajectories in terms of you know, all the things, but certainly maybe addiction and mental health and all of that. So it's kind of the water we're swimming in, but not really aware of. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think I would uh, say that, you know, from an individual perspective, um, that it, it's, it's just so fascinating. One part I just love about my job is being able to 
hear someone's story um, as them as the expert. And um, you know, when I was doing my master's program, there was all of these like categorizes. When you work with you know Native American folks, then you need to be aware of this. And when you work with these cultures, be aware of this. And um, I remember at the time thinking how overwhelming as a therapist I would have to like learn all the cultures <laughs> and all the ways to navigate cultures. And you know, and I'm like, there must be an easier way. Mm -hmm. There is. You just simply ask someone, um, right? Because it doesn't matter how many boxes I understand. It matters how they understand their box and mm -hmm. if they even have a box or see it as that. And so um, I think a lot of times I'll see you know assumptions being made and you know in, in in staffings and things like that. Oh well, you know we're dealing with this type of culture, then we have to have this approach. I'm like, is that true? Mm -hmm. Is that true for that individual? Mm -hmm. um, did anyone bother to ask them? Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to sit down and hear someone's story about you know the boxes they've been put in and how that's impacted them and affected them and the, and the box they're trying to, to be put in and um, and sometimes it's a rejection of a culture that they're asking for. Stop mm -hmm. seeing me as this and mm -hmm. stop treating me as this or because of my you know trauma and experiences I want nothing to do with this mm -hmm. and you know and so a lot of times hearing that and then allowing that person to you know the, to be the expert at something for once in their life usually mm -hmm. like when you come through treatment you're told where to go and where to sit and what diagnosis you have and and how the program is going to be laid out and mm -hmm. how you're going to fit into it um, can sometimes be very overwhelming and frustrating and so sometimes just I think the best way to approach it is just to hear mm -hmm. how that person's environment mm -hmm. and experience um, is going to you know help us mm -hmm. understand them. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you for uh, bringing forward what's, what, what makes you both passionate about this topic. I'm gonna attempt slightly. It's not something that uh, I need a response to, but just slightly create an analogy through philosophy. Uh, so I'm gonna try and bring my bread and butter to this. Uh, Jean Sartre, French philosopher, ex famous existentialist, uh, infamously said that essence precedes existence, meaning that our, our experiences come prior to these essential features mm -hmm. as um, which Historically in philosophy, um, the essential aspects of ourselves was thought to, um, we thought or we believed that those were more rudimentary and fundamental to our nature where our experiences are the actual thriving thing. And so with this, it seems like uh, in regards to culture and societal norms, right, that an individual has their own experience within the world, but there are experiences behind it in front of it that thinks this is actually the way the individual ought to be in that sort of way. And so uh, for me, this topic um, is inspiring, inspiring and it resonates with me uh, that there's sort of a challenge of authenticity here. How I feel authentic within the world through my own personal experiences, yet at the same time, maybe my family, my friends or otherwise told me I actually should be experiencing the world in this way because this is the way that the world works. Yes. And so laying the foundation of authenticity uh, and what that is like I think is um, an important aspect of this before we start grinding away at some question here. So uh, what does it mean to be authentic and what are some of the examples of what this might look like in sort of uh, maybe everyday life, if not just you know, keeping it rooted within what we see at peaks mm -hmm. uh, in that regard? And we can go either way, whoever's excited here, fire away. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, um, I mean, I use the term true north um, with clients and a lot of times that um, kind of opens the door of like, wow, no one's, no one's asked me what my true north is. Um, and you know, and how, like it seems like that should be for everybody's, right? Because mm -hmm. on, on the dial of a compass, north is north, um, right? And we yeah. all gotta head that direction yeah. and it's not agreed upon. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, you know, for someone to show up authentically, I think in, in both positive and negative ways, it's, it's a sense of feeling accepted for who you are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from something as small as like just 
hey, how are you? And being able to answer that question authentically, mm -hmm. um, right? I, I don't have to tell you I'm good if I'm not good. Mm -hmm. um, and if, you know, if I do that enough times and I show up authentically, then when I am good, you'll believe it. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm weathering the weather, Mm -hmm. then you'll believe it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also in big ways to be able to, if that's, if that's safe to mm -hmm. do, um, then maybe the next question is safe as well and that I can start showing up and know that I can be trusted and or that you could be trusted, that you will accept me and it's safe mm -hmm. to be authentic and, mm -hmm. and show up as who I am. Yeah. That makes sense. Sense. Yeah, so I mean, I, th I, I love that. I, I completely agree with that, right? Like sort of learning incrementally that it's okay to be authentic, that it's okay to show up. I think so many times we hear, and whether it's from family, friends, or again, like society writ large, all of these messages about who we should be mm -hmm. based upon what folks around us think we, we are categorized as, right? And so I think the tendency over time is to begin to pare ourselves down to fit into these narrower and narrower boxes. Um, to hide certain aspects of ourselves if, our, if our, maybe our family has told us those are wrong or those aren't okay. Um, and the more we do that, the further away we get from our true north, from ourselves. And that doesn't feel good, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't right. feel good. And so we're living out our daily lives in, in speech and behavior in ways that don't feel true to us, um, but are instead like placating those around us and, and these ideas of who we've been told we should be. Um, and that's a separation of self from self. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. And so what does it look like when people begin to move away from their authentic selves and how does this happen? You know, so I can imagine a family is sitting at home, um, maybe noticing that, you know, uh, Johnny in a certain example behaves in a certain way when we come at him in this way and then something changes in that process. Are there, you know, are there telltale signs maybe that you know, family systems at home or those within, you know, the, you know, political landscape or otherwise or however it's being absorbed through the lens here at Finding Peaks uh, for which, uh, you know, they can notice when uh, a person is moving away from their authentic selves or, you know, what do those tripwires look like? Yeah, I think that's different for everyone. <laughs> um, I, if I can just reference, you know, a family meeting we just sat on and it was interesting that when we were talking about relapse and what relapse warning signs are, it was, you know, most of them are like, oh, it's very clear. They isolate and they shut down and they stop responding. And, um, and it was interesting that one person was like, yeah, no, that's actually my, you know, how I notice is my son, you know, my child um, does the opposite. And so, you know, to speak to like, that's maybe 90% of the warning signs of depression. Um, but sometimes it's the opposite, that if that is their normal and they're normally quiet and reserved, that all of a sudden they're coming out of their shell and, um, and it's not looking healthy in that mm -hmm. way, um, that they you know, have too much energy and are way too social, um, then that's the warning sign. And so I, you know, I think it's like, you know, when you know someone in their healthy state, um, and then what is, what is happening when they are unhealthy mm -hmm. um, is different for all of us. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think for me, my, my true north, obviously, we just finished talking, like, everyone says I'm secure, right? So, you know, when I start saying I'm feeling a little nervous, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm having a little hesitancy, and, um, you know, and, and it may sound appropriate and normal and people can relate to it, but when someone looks at me and says, that's not something you usually say, mm -hmm. what's going on, mm -hmm. um, right? So then, then it feels like, oh, it, then I know I'm, it's safe to be authentic. Yeah. It's safe that these people are okay to tell that I'm upset or, or anxious or you know, having some insecurities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, one of the 
uh, and we'll, we'll get to your side sure. of this as well, Kimberly, of course, but you know, an example that you know, comes to mind for me is, I'm thinking about a past uh, patient at Peaks Recovery Centers, and this individual suffered from a significant mental health disorder, and there's a, a, a family um, gaining knowledge about this disorder, learning it in real time, trying to figure out a path forward to um, make this the best outcome possible, and at the same time, uh, dad in this regard is really calling on son to, you know, sort of get out of the basement inevitably at the end of the day and get a job. This sort of, sort of societal norm, right, that you have to be working. But for this individual working in the world is going to look entirely different. And out of that, it feels like it, it, that's the societal norm tension pulling on a major, you know, an authentic, uh, a piece of authenticity for the individual in the way that this individual's experiences in the world isn't isn't always going to give him an opportunity to be the best uh, that he can be in the strict sense of a 40-hour work week as a societal norm. And there's still this sort of negative tone in the background, right, of like, you know, uh, tie the bootstraps up and get out there and get into the workforce and get out of the basement. And it's those types of things that I just wanted to create a, a, uh, an example of and, and get your feedback on and reel on that. Um, is, is that kind of correctly what we're looking at here is sort of a even if it's a benign example, at least an example of kind of tension that's created between the norms and where the person is authentically living their life? I think it certainly can be, absolutely. You know, the thing that comes to mind for me, and, and this is where I think particularly the clinical team has their work cut out for them, is that a lot of times these, these messages and wherever they're coming from, whether it's television and other media or family or, or anything, they begin so, so early on in life and they occur so frequently that I think a lot of times um, folks who are coming in, clients who are coming into peaks, like they may be unaware, right? Mm -hmm. Like that water, they may be unaware of these sort of messages they've, they've internalized and the ways those messages have caused them to sort of rearrange the parts of themselves mm -hmm. um, away from being that authentic self. So part of, I think, the brilliant work of the clinical team is to kind of find where those might be. And, and a lot of times I think that's where, that's where a lot of the issue lies in terms of, you know, why I may have started using substances or why I, I fell, you know, so deeply into a depression. And of course it's not, causality isn't clean and sharp, right? right. But, but these may have to do with it, right? And how can we figure out what messages you were receiving about who you experienced yourself to be authentically um, but then we're told, like, that's not okay in mm -hmm. whatever way. Or knowing that doesn't fit me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to be able to work a 40-hour work week. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I don't feel comfortable wearing those sorts of clothes or mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. Um, but feeling as though you're sort of squeezed and distilled into this, in, into like a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I see it. Um, what I love about families and working with families is so often I will see because um, we will work with, with an individual before we really do some of the family, at least the intense family work. Um, and so I will meet this person on, you know, completely different terms than anybody else knows them. You know, certainly in a therapy session, you get um, generally a lot of authenticity, um, yeah. you know, and, and if, you, if you're doing it right. Right, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the ideal. Yes. Yeah. Um, Not to yeah. toot your own horn, no, but if you but do it right. if you do it right, you know, and I, I can't say that I always do it right, so I know when it's done right, because yeah. I'm like, oh, here it is, right? Um, 
that you know you you put them back in the family environment, even if it's just you know a family on the screen, and I'll see a different person. And so that is really valuable, also you know afterwards to sort of um, talk about that and like, wow, you showed up completely different when these other people were present. What's going on there? Mm -hmm. um, and they can you know then they can speak to it, and oftentimes they don't even realize it until you're like you you even sat differently, you spoke used different words, you even said the exact opposite of what you told me yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, right? And you know, and, and so when you when you're able to point that out safely and, and gently, mm -hmm. um, people can start realizing like I do speak differently in these realms and um, and it doesn't and this is why I do it. And so being able to kind of point out, I was like, well is that because yesterday you were someone that didn't feel good? Like is, did I create a space where you felt like you had to tell me what I wanted to hear, because that happens in mm -hmm. a therapy session, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the teacher session, in any kind of session. Um, and, you know, or is there something going on that these people expect mm -hmm. something from you? And, um, and, and, and it's really beautiful sometimes when you can bring them together and, and have a you know, parent say, well, I thought I was promoting something that was true to you, mm -hmm. yeah. right? I had no idea. Like you said you wanted to do this 10 years ago. I was just promoting it this whole time. And they're like, well, I changed my mind eight years ago, yeah. um, right? Yeah. And they just never learned how to have a conversation about how to be real with each mm -hmm. other and, um, and be authentic and, and, and have a person say, I, I didn't know my, my person would support me if I changed or if I was different. Um, and then, you know, that's the good case scenario, yeah. I guess, yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> Where both sides sort of come to this, like, conclusion, this reality that, like, I was unaware of this and I was unaware of this and here we were in these roles, yeah. right, without kind of realizing what was going on. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then know that, like, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a you problem, it wasn't a me problem, it was this communication problem. Mm -hmm. And all along, like, you know, depression has, there's this gap, right? Mm -hmm. When we don't speak and live authentically, um, there's a gap between who we, you know, are supposed to be and are expected to be and, and who we really want to be and who, where our true north is. And that gap has to be filled. Mm -hmm. um, and it gets filled with depression, it gets filled with anxiety, it gets filled with trauma, um, and substances fill it really effectively mm -hmm. yeah. um, for a time. Yeah. So that our, our viewers out there aren't, uh, before we dive into uh, responsibility of treatment programming and cultural competency, uh, for the sake of our viewers, so they don't run to Google and think, I got to be a therapist to communicate with my loved one <laughs> in this regard and to be tactful in that way, you know, what are um, some, what's some advice we can give to family systems about how to explore this openly, you know, as a topic where they see tension within the individual uh, regarding authenticity, and maybe it's authenticity is on their part as well too. You know, being curious comes to mind and being inquisitive, asking questions first versus making statements about what we're looking at. Um, but not being the therapist, I don't wanna steal the show. You know, what are some, some advice that we can give to these family systems in support of better connecting uh, tissues between them and their loved ones? Oh, that's a that's a, that's a good big one. question. Yeah, that's that was, a whole family I, that program. Was uh, that, is. <laughs> that wasn't on the questionnaire. That was that was left that was Just, left yeah, field. Yes. That. No, I, I think um, you know a great a great place to start is absolutely the curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also, I do think it's important sometimes for even it, even if it feels implied or or whatever the case may be from what your communication is like with each other, but to say. Um, you know, really put forth, I, I, I want to be here for you and I want to hear about your experience mm -hmm. in the world. I want to know what you're going through and what you've been through 
and I'm, I'm willing to have that conversation, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I, th I do think sometimes we think that's implied with whoever we're interacting with, and it isn't always, right? Mm -hmm. A person may, may be feeling unsafe to be authentic mm -hmm. about themselves or their experience or something, and, and it doesn't mean either side did anything wrong. It just kind of is the way it is. But to hear, you know, I, I, I want to know what's going on with mm -hmm. you, and I, I, you know, I'm curious about that. I want to hear about your experience, and um, I think is important just as a starting point yeah mm -hmm. and I think also to be able to relate to that um, that if there is you know if you sense that there is some moment that your person is um, someone you love your partner whoever that is um, maybe struggling with anxiety or depression or substance use um, you know or experienced a trauma to be able to say like you know it's safe to talk to me um, yeah. I, I accept that there's something going on that I don't understand and mm -hmm. I really want to understand. Um, and then when you hear something, when you see that, you know, change or that shift, um, then to be able to relate it and say, yeah, you know, I, there's pieces of me that I don't share. Yeah. Um, and so I know what it's like. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I probably fill a role that mm -hmm. is expected from me as well yeah. um, that I didn't mean to hand down to you, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. I was just passing this down. And, um, you know, we use these terms in treatment, you know, called family, at least I do, and family legacies, you know, and like sometimes that that feels like a inheritance or mm -hmm. right like you know you're you're taking the trophy off the shelf and handing it down but there's also family legacies of you know don't say what you feel and mm -hmm. family legacies of um you know play the part and you know do this when people are watching mm -hmm. right um and that those are valuable probably survival tools um mm -hmm. most often um at least in you know in in, in culture mm -hmm. um it was was a survival tool and now that society has changed or generations have changed or you know families are melding it it no longer fits it no longer works and um and you know we give individuals permission to not pick up that legacy mm -hmm. um and then be able to communicate to the people in their lives to say hey this this is who you are, but it's not who I choose to be. Mm -hmm. And I hope you accept me for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. And if, um, you know, for family systems out there as well too, uh, watching this uh, today, uh, appreciated first and foremost. And secondly, as well too, if, we, if you find yourself jammed up in these moments and not feeling like the, even if you're open as you both have put it to, hey, I'm here for you and I wanna listen, I wanna be involved and I want to embrace what, you, what your authentic self is, how do I do that? If you feel like um, that, that isn't getting you where you wanna go, certainly I think the next stage of that is um, how can I help you get in front of somebody for which you can explore your authentic mm -hmm. self to help communicate with me as a family system and so forth. So always keep in mind professional counselors out there in the world, um, you know, peers and so forth. Sometimes it's just more comfortable to speak to someone else in that regard. And I, uh, out of that, I think I just want to uh, give families some grace in this because it's Absolutely. not always easy to navigate these situations, especially when you pile on a, a, a depression, ang anxious or SUD diagnosis on top of that. Uh, as well too. So uh, switching gears slightly, I appreciate you guys fielding the left field question there, uh, <laughs> but what is the role and responsibility of a treatment program in regards to nurturing authenticity? So the individual arrives at peaks and how do we get that right? Mm. We ask yeah. lots of questions and we keep asking questions um, and then we check in mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we are um, 
answering the questions and responding to the, those questions. So I think, you know, most agencies, especially in mental health and addiction world, have a question um, at intake of like, tell me about your culture and how can we, you know, support it in any kind of way. And then um, I think oftentimes the program takes over and mm -hmm. there's kind of a forget. If there's a really big moment or someone who knows how to advocate for themselves, I think there's a sense of respect for that. Um, but if it's but if there's not safe to be authentic in your culture, um, I think there's a kind of implied like, oh, well, they'll let us know if we need to do something different. Right. Um, right. And if you, know, if, you, if you take someone who's lived their entire life and not a safe space of letting people know, um, then that, is, that in and of itself is, is disrespectful to their culture. Or if they come from a culture that doesn't do that, that, mm -hmm. um, that frowns upon that, you know, and, and waits for the questions, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, and so I think making space at intake um, certainly is valuable, but then um, recognizing as it shows up, um, knowing that if, if someone is struggling in, in any particular environment, um, that it's, it's likely the environment. Mm -hmm. And, and not the person, mm -hmm. um, right? And I mean, sometimes it is the person, but most likely they are responding to something in their environment. Um, and, you know, and so if, if we are a treatment provider, we are the environment mm -hmm. and we have control over that and we can navigate it um, and we have the power and staff and ability and experience um, to kind of put down our own stuff um, and be able to say this person is vulnerable, this person is seeking treatment and, um, and this person deserves a little leeway and, and gentleness um, mm -hmm. in this area. And maybe we don't have to force our, our program into them. Maybe it's about them mm -hmm. you know, opening up in our program and allowing us to learn yeah. from what they have to offer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree, right? The questions need to continue. The curiosity needs to continue. And, and that a lot of times that's on us. That falls on us as peak staff. I think the other piece of it is, is for us to continue uh, excavating the ways that our own cultures, whatever they be, you know, um, affect us and, and inform our implicit biases or our beliefs about the world, our belief systems, because the more we know about ourselves and about those things, right, the more likely we are to be able to help a client come in and see the water, mm -hmm. the water, so mm -hmm. to speak, right? Um, I think, um, and, and empowering them to tell that story, right? Like you were saying, I mean, we, we make it to the point where we're assuming, well, because you come from this culture, then, right? If this, then that. Um, and I think that we let them lead the way instead, all the while being mindful of like, you know, biases implicitly or otherwise that we may have and, and continue, like, to continue to be willing to learn um, and willing to show up for them. And honestly, a, a, a big part, I think for me, is to be able to be receptive when a client or anyone else says, that was out of line, or mm -hmm. here's why that didn't feel good because this was said to me you know, when I was younger, mm -hmm. or you know, I didn't like this, right? And to be okay, to kind of resist that temptation to immediately get defensive and to say, okay, like, I, I wanna take a look at this. I'm sorry that that hurt you, right? And I I'm still learning too. Um, and that's the calling out versus, right? Or calling in versus mm -hmm. calling out, I think. Um, but to continually be aware and be willing to grow even at times when it's uncomfortable 
for us. Yeah. I celebrate those moments mm -hmm. and I say thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's one of the first conversations I have with my clients. I said, I want you to know that you have every right to challenge me and I encourage you to do that and that may not feel safe and that might not have been safe in the past, but please, if I get it wrong, I'm just a good guesser. Mm -hmm. Really, like I have all these letters after my name, but that all they mean is I'm a good guesser. <laughs> I'm a good guesser. Um, and if I guess wrong, I, it's I'm not doing either one of us any good. Right. Um, you know, and so you know, and if I know someone is you know tends to be quiet and withdrawn or um, you know internal in their experience, um, then you know then I will be checking in, and be like, is this conversation okay? I I just challenged something for you and. That may seem easy for me, but I'm wondering how it is for you. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you can, yeah, no, I, that was never okay in my house. Or, you know, that, well, it's okay here. Mm -hmm. um, you yeah. know, and, and I want it to be okay in, in other places in your world. Maybe it's never going to be okay mm -hmm. in your family, and that's okay. Um, how do we help you feel safe in those places where you can't be authentic mm -hmm. um, and accept that, but mm -hmm. not have to go to, you know, extremes or, you know, experience, inc you know, incredible depression or anxiety um, because of that thing you can't control, mm -hmm. um, but also find places in your life where you get to allow yourself to ask good questions or give good feedback yeah. and yeah. people will celebrate it yeah. and say, thank you. Thank you <laughs> for helping me grow. Right. <laughs> Well, Pam, I know you and your husband are probably our biggest fans at Finding Peaks uh, and watching all, all of the episodes. And you know, through our episodes, one of the things that I love doing within this host seat is uh, calling, uh, well, I'm changing my language from calling out to calling on an industry to disrupt its behaviors and to think more dynamically about what we're doing each and every day. And the conversation between you two just now just reminds me of uh, how dynamic our patient demographic is at any given time. And uh, it's also having me think about all of the downward pressure that we experience as an organization, whether it is social or societal and cultural norms, whether it's the insurance company telling us to diligently document and write these notes to their standards. And uh, we have a curriculum, and then we got people coming out of detox into the curriculum. It feels like you know, we're on this sort of merry-go-round ride and insert the client each uh, within any given moment onto this merry-go-round um, that is our curriculum and our 45-day model, um, it's, I think it, it, it exposes how, um, how difficult it is to uh, maintain that focus and to sit with the individual mm -hmm. and draw uh, them into the experience rather than say, welcome to the experience, let's go <laughs> <laughs> in that regard. So how do we go about ensuring programs like Peaks don't end up making cultural competency a website catchphrase? Mm -hmm. And how do we actually live out uh, cultural competency each and every day? Because, you know, me and my you know, corner office in the IO, you know, uh, at, at uh, Peaks in the IOP program, you know, parents might ask me something like, would you guys, you know, embrace cultural competency? And of course, like, I read books. Yes, we do that. But <laughs> at the same time, right, it's going to change and shift within the environment at all times. And so how does it get from me making a statement about it to making it true within the organization and then making sure uh, that it's energized at all moments? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe too, you're about to tell me what, we're, do what we're doing wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we incorporate it into peak staff culture mm -hmm. continually, right? Mm -hmm. And not just on a quarterly basis or something, but that's a continual conversation that we have amongst ourselves. And I think it's a great idea to incorporate in, in, into curriculum that clients are going through as well, right? Um, and it will speak to them. There's no doubt about that. It will speak to them because it is their lived experience in whatever way. Um, and I, I think that 
if you continually commit to growing and learning in those ways, you're never going to be doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. You might not always get it exactly right, but that's part of it, right? Mm -hmm. There's always more to learn. There's never a monopoly on the information about every culture in all time and place. And mm -hmm. um, continuing to stay curious, continuing to be willing to let defenses down and say, you know what, I didn't get that right, and that's okay, mm -hmm. and I apologize, I'm sorry. Um, I'll, I'll continue to try to do better. Um, for staff and, and, and everyone involved. Um, you know, it's a, it's a thing that I feel in our culture and I think there's improvement, uh, there's room for mm -hmm. improvement as there always will be. Um, but I feel pretty proud of, you know, what's there now, absolutely. Yeah, same. Um, I, you know, I, I definitely will say like this, this happens on, and it's certainly happening in a developing way. Um, you know, I come from um, working in social services where like it, it is, is so very valuable and it's so very present in court systems and DHS systems that um, I think when I came in here, there was a bit of a buffer um, from some obvious, you know, structural issues. And, um, you know, and so, you know, I thought, oh, I, I won't be dealing with that anymore. Like that was a passing thought. It didn't yeah, last yeah. very long, um, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. oh, it, it's in the private sector too. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Um, so really quickly, I was like, there's a need for this mm -hmm. um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I also think that like from a staff perspective, right? You know, what I love about you know our program. Um, you know, I know that might sound like a commercial, but it, I love our program. <laughs> Sell it. Um, yeah. <laughs> what I love about our program is like you know we we bring in. Um, people who have these lived experiences. And so I'm constantly referring to the CCAs and the residential man managers and, um, you know, and saying like, hey, these are your experts. Like they, I have the license, but they have the degree. Um, mm. They have this experience that I can't speak to and, um, and vice versa. And so it, it, it makes for a, a great conversation in front of clients and with clients, um, you know, whenever we are resolving problems, um, you know, and then there's also this, you know, kind of parallel interaction that happens. Um, so the clients also get to see, you know, like, hey, you did a thing, you said a word, and I'm, I'm not okay with it, um, you know, and, um, but I'm wondering, you know, where that comes from, you know, tell me, tell me why this is, you know, part of your culture, you know, maybe there's something I'm not understanding, and, um, and to be able to say, are you aware that, you know, that that hurt me, or that might hurt some people when, when you use that language, um, right, and that, and that environment, making it natural and organic, um, you know, I think right after um, we did the cultural comp, that night, or that afternoon, someone mm -hmm. said something um, that, you know, it was kind of side issue. It's not the general, you know, everybody knows you don't comment on these five factors of, <laughs> yeah. right? like, of culture, yeah. right? Um, but not realizing that culture is, you know, in what I eat. Culture mm -hmm. is in the shoes I wear. Mm -hmm. Culture is in, you know, yeah. like the, um, you know, so many aspects that, you, you will never know from your perspective what is culture to me. Mm -hmm. You have to ask, you have to be aware, and I have yeah. to tell you. Yeah. Um, you know, so to make a flippant kind of remark and say, hey, are you aware? And, and immediately seeing that like, oh, I did the thing. And I'm yeah. like, thanks for that, thanks <laughs> yeah. for that, you yeah. know? <laughs> That's valuable. Yeah. Um, I think on a, you know, just a, a yeah, a, a, a company culture way Absolutely. Um, yeah. is just one of the ways. I could probably go on for hours on all the other ways oh, that yeah. we can implement it. Yeah, um, big topic. And we're going to keep doing this together. Mm -hmm. I, I love this experience with you both so far. And I think one of the 
you know, one of the things that uh, comes to mind in, in, in hearing you both just now as well, too, is that, you know, societal and cultural norms, you know, exist across, you know, the LGBTIQ acronym, across the way um, uh, we see sexuality within culture. Uh, there's a variety of different ways to kind of go about it, but also within substance use disorder and, and mental health primary uh, settings, there are these cultural norms that are created about how we see the addict or how we Absolutely. see the individual coming in. And I think one of the common um, things that I've seen that we've been in error of is when an individual comes in, kind of the first thing you think, because addiction is such a powerful word and it's so big in our society, is like, what drugs you know, or alcohol brought you into this setting? And I've seen it on several occasions where they're, you know, the individual says, I'm not here for any of that. Like, mm -hmm. our first response is, there's a, there's a disorder in its substances, and what does that look like? And then we're kind of taken back, you know, trying to figure that out. And I'm just curious if you can speak to that a little bit sure. um, within your experience and in the environment at Peaks. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's a perfect example of how we try to fit a system through, you know, the person mm -hmm. um, is, you know, and when someone comes in as, you know, mental health and saying, I have depression, um, you know, and, and it feels very othered. Right. Like I don't belong here because all you guys talk about right. and your program talks about and, um, you know, and I come from mental health primary. Like that's where, you know, my um, where my passion started. Um, and in fact, I, you know, sort of rejected the substance abuse uh, mm -hmm. realm, um, <laughs> you know, and, and and partly because of my culture. Yeah. Um, right. And, and not realizing how much culture played a part in my own biases and my own insecurities of saying I can't possibly be helping people in that realm because I haven't resolved some things myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then having some really great people in my world going, maybe you should resolve those things, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, yeah. dang it, uh, <laughs> dang it. Yeah. Um, it, is a, it is a nice mirror um, society here in the treatment world. Um, <laughs> there's always a reflection. Um, and so, you know, to be able to hear someone say like, it's okay for me to, you know, drink some champagne at my wedding it is perfectly fine and, and you're not gonna stop me and if you try to, then you're gonna disconnect me and you're gonna lose the opportunity to help me manage my depression right. um, by trying to fixate on something that you feel is a problem rather than see what I feel is a problem. Right. Because this will be a problem if, it, it'll fit, if it's gonna be a problem. Right. Um, and if you're not ready to look at it, then it's not my business to make you look at it. It's mm -hmm. my business to hear what you see as the problem um, and, and how you feel like you can move forward with it. Mm -hmm. And so if someone says, don't put me in a sober home um, because I plan on drinking I just and, and, and I plan on managing my depression, um, it doesn't matter what my view is. It doesn't matter what my experience or my education tells me. What matters is that this person is saying, this is what I want help with. And, and it's our job to say, okay, let's find you. Let's look outside our own boxes right. and find you an aftercare plan that meets where you say your next step is. Um, because maybe 10 steps down the road, you'll be different, but today what's most important is your next step. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think it's up to us just in the same way that it's not up to us to decide what a person's culture looks like or what it means to them, right? If they're coming to you and saying, this is not what I'm here for, or I know that I came for this reason and not this reason, um, I, I think, I think it behooves us to respect that, right? Mm -hmm. And then sort of develop a plan for their treatment based upon that. I think it also offers some opportunity. Um, a couple clients come to mind um, that came in um, as mental health primary and um, were sort of like, I, I, I'm not like them, right? Yeah, that that yeah. kind of idea and that's an opportunity to say, okay, let's talk about that, mm -hmm. right? That, that calling in, that mm -hmm. calling in, let's look at that. Like, why are we othering? you know, from this group as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and good for us to learn. There's also been a couple instances of clients who come in and they certainly um, have had issues with diagnosed uh, substance use disorders and, and saying, you know, what, what brings you here? Um, and they will say, well, it all started when da-da-da-da-da, mm -hmm. right? And they may be being treated for mm -hmm. substance use disorders and be completely on board with that. But, but to them, that's not the crux of the issue, right? right? And they, they want to they wanna let you know what, what they think was sort of the impetus for this thing, at least where it started back when. And um, to be able to listen to that and hear that, right? And understand that not everyone conceptualizes substance use disorders and mental health disorders in the same way that we tend to, you know, on a larger scale, mm -hmm. I think is, is always good, yeah. more opportunity to learn. It's always awesome. Um, I mean, I, I just love, I love a lot about the treatment program. I'm, mm -hmm. Like I just, I love to provide treatment. Um, I love groups, I love individuals, um, but sitting in a, in a group and um, having the topic be like relapse cycle, right? Or, you know, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy triangle of, you know, alcohol addiction. Um, and, and, and you can get a lot of people on board in that group. Like, yeah, I know exactly how this is gonna go and I know, and I can give you all the answers, but you're gonna lose a few people. Yeah. Um, you know, and especially if alcohol isn't their drug of choice, you know, if it, if it is something other than that, opiates or, um, you know, and then the person with depression is like, let me know when you guys are done, <laughs> right. um, you know, but then when you frame it through, you know, like if someone, in, you know, looks at me and says, well, you know, Pam, are you in recovery? I'll look at them and say, anger is my drug of choice. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the room can get on board with that, yeah. right? So we bring them all together to say, it doesn't matter what substance you use. You know, if I punch someone, how is that any better, yeah. um, right, <laughs> than you drinking? And, you know, and so what I know is that we all have to manage our emotions. Yeah. Can we just agree on that? Can we come to terms with that? And, um, and that's always very powerful mm -hmm. when, you know, because I've done the, the CBT cycle for addiction and have half of everybody on board and it's really helpful to that one person that really wants to understand their drinking patterns. Um, but then I will follow it up with like, well, let's, let's see how this matches with the depression cycle. And then everybody in the room, you know, especially the person who is struggling with the drinking cycle be like, yeah, me too. <laughs> right? Yeah. Actually, that's the bigger problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it always was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fantastic. And beautiful and I think um, good glimpses into like a group setting and how you corral all the differences so that people feel uh, invited into the discussion yes. versus like, yeah, just tell me when this is over mm -hmm. and a day of treatment is lost in that regard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and many of the things uh, that you guys just had this conversation about as well too, I, I just, I'm dying to prod at the industry, but um, I may get clipped uh, from the editors in the, in the studio here. So, um, so I'm gonna avoid that today. We'll come back more thoughtful so I don't just jab the industry in the wrong ways, but I wanna invite you guys back in the future because this is a big topic and there's a lot of ways in which we can uh, discuss it, invite people into the conversation and so forth. And, but before uh, I take us out on this 50th episode, uh, in our exit here, uh, Daryl Davis, Loretta Ross, we wanna create a few links for uh, individuals um, that'll be available uh, for all the kids out there on the social media and the families watching us uh, as well too on the Facebook because only the elders use Facebook. But in that regard, uh, what, what do we want to say about these two individuals and uh, what do we want them thinking about maybe in, as they go and explore these, you know, YouTube channels and TED Talks? Uh, yeah, I would just Google those names. Um, okay. You know, like Daryl, I listened to a podcast of, of Daryl Davis and, and the way that, you know, he is a, a blues man from the South um, who managed to get 
Ku Klux Klan members to hand over their robes. And that, to me, with love, yeah. with love, mm -hmm. no violence, no hostility, no judgment. Like he just showed up and kept showing up saying, help me understand what you're saying. Help me understand why you hate me. Help me understand why you hate, you know, all of this. Help me understand why you do what you do. Um, and did it enough times by befriending people who hated him, who were out to get him, who quite likely, you know, created hostility and violence in, in people that he knew. Um, and he did it because he genuinely wanted to understand that the, the act of being curious and wanting to understand was more powerful than being hated and, and being criticized and, um, and, and quite frankly, being traumatized um, by their experiences. And so um, that is something to always look up to. Like as mm -hmm. a person whose anger is their drug of choice, um, like, <laughs> I know how hard yeah. that is to do. He's a better man than me. Um, <laughs> and then Loretta just you know, says it so beautifully and just how like when I call you out, I, I miss an opportunity and I disconnect us. Yes. Um, and that teaches neither one of us anything. Mm -hmm. um, but when I call you in, I gain an opportunity and you gain an opportunity to be able to tell me the other side. Um, and it works. It works for people who are being oppressed to say, hey, help me understand what's happening for you right now. Help me understand why you would say that. Help me understand why you see it this way um, because I'm genuinely curious. And when you lean in, people lean in, right? Mm -hmm. And when you push away, people push away. And, um, and it also works for the oppressor. When there's someone in the room who is being derogatory, who is saying a joke that is you know, certainly off color, to be able to, and rather than humiliate them and shame them, which is unfair, certainly mm -hmm. in treatment centers, it's unethical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so we have to bring them into the conversation too and say, hey, are you even aware of yeah. you know, how that affects right. people? And, and if we have a relationship, then I get to start it. Hopefully this person is hearing it. Um, and then maybe eventually they get to learn that skill of being able to stand up for themselves and build a connection with someone that they never would have had the opportunity to. Absolutely. Yeah. I used to tell you know, my students that I, you will never get in trouble for ignorance. Uh, and I think too often that's, that's our snap you know, way of responding when situations mm -hmm. like this occur. And if you, know, if you don't know, you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the goal should be to make people aware, right? To increase understanding rather than to say, you, know, you said this and you made this mistake and now you're, you're, you're canceled. Yeah, right. right. You're canceled. canceled. Right. Yeah. Um, I I think you know this perfectly exemplifies kind of what we've talked about here. Right. To go into to to clan meetings and to say help me understand. Right. And, and certainly that's you know that's not the responsibility of every person who's a member of an oppressed group to go you know and do this. Right. But but to it, there had to be a realization on his part that this is cultural messaging that they've received. They're behaving from messages mm -hmm. they've received culturally. And it may not have anything to do with who they are authentically. Mm -hmm. And once they know me, right, once I become an individual and we've connected on that basis, I cease to be just part and parcel of a, of a general grouping, right? It's more difficult to hate someone um, or to hold beliefs about them um, when, when they're just part of this sort of uh, gauzy, group of people, right? Mm -hmm. When you really get to know someone and, and, and touch base with them authentically, um, that's where the magic happens, yeah. right? Absolutely, right? It's one thing to, to cancel, from the cancel culture lens to say you're a racist versus help me reconcile what you just said because right. I know you in this sort of way. Yes. Right? Absolutely. And I believe in your ability to, to 
to connect. Mm -hmm. I believe in your ability. I don't think this is coming from a hatred place. I mm -hmm. think this is coming from a place that you just don't understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go through this together yeah. and come side by side with people. So, I mean, my, certainly my intention, um, you know, in, in understanding and, you know, in building a committee, you know, with my past employer and being able to bring it into this employer and say, hey, this is important. And I, you know, I, I'm okay if, if you don't like me for saying this, but I'm gonna keep saying it because it's my job and it's part of my commitment, um, you know, is, is, is to really come from a place of, I knew I was raised, um, you know, to kind of confront things and that works sometimes. Um, but more often it shuts people down and then I feel like I've just kind of ruined relationships. And yeah. so um, be a, you know, a teacher, not a preacher um, yeah. is right. Like that yeah. <laughs> if we can, we can do that together and learn together, then, you know, then I feel like I'm growing. Yeah. That feels good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being yeah. here, for coming on thank board. I think you. we're going to do this again. I had a great time. Nerves a little down now. <laughs> you got the experience, right? It's just lights, cameras, noises, all that sort of thing. You two are fantastic. You did a wonderful job. Can't wait to have you back to continue to explore this topic so that uh, I can get a new opportunity to jab the industry a little bit through your, both of your lenses there. And uh, so for everybody, viewers at home, we hope that this was an exceptional 50th episode for you, that it was thought-provoking, insightful. Please check out the links that we provided in regards to Daryl Davis and Loretta Ross. Um, their TED Talks and podcasts are just brilliant. Uh, and uh, so finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Uh, if you want more insights or opportunities to ask the, uh, these uh, two uh, professionals that are in front of me right now, uh, more questions in the futures, send us uh, that feedback. Otherwise, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams, the what else are the kids? TikToks. The TikTok, Chris Burns, everybody. <laughs> Look for Chris Burns on the TikTok. He's loud, he's proud, he's excited. Let's go for recovery, he might say. Until, tech, uh, until next time, Brandon Burns signing off. So grateful to be here. Happy 50th. Take care, everybody. Thank you.